True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we look at some of the true crime stories in the South African media at the moment. Before I get into today's minisode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon member for the week, Samantha Cooper. Samantha, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. The good news for all of our Patreon members who've been so patient in supporting me over the last few months is that August will be the first month that you'll start to see Patreon-exclusive content in your feed. I'll aim to release at least one Patreon-exclusive episode per month. But if time allows, I'll do more. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, or give a one-off donation through PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media, are all ways that help the show to continue growing and improving. Right, so let's get into this week's minisode. It's going to be a traditional spotlight minisode, where I discuss cases that have been in the media recently, because there have been quite a few interesting and tragic cases lately. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The first case that caught my attention was the arrest of three men for murder in Bloemfontein. Sephora Chobo disappeared in early July. According to a News 24 article, her husband, Corpano Chobo, told police that he'd arrived home to find a note from his wife, in which she said that she was going to meet a person on the outskirts of Bloemfontein. He said that she'd left her cell phone next to the note. This report came to light after Corpano contacted the police to say that he had found his wife's body. The man alleged that he'd gone to look for Sephora on the 4th of July in the area where she said she was meeting the unnamed person and he'd stumbled upon her body. The note was taken into evidence and police soon proved that it had in fact not been written by Sephora but rather by Copano's brother who was then arrested. At this point, the whole sordid truth was revealed, as Copano's brother claimed that he, Copano, and a friend had planned Sephora's murder. It's alleged that Sephora was lured out of her house by her husband, who'd done this in such a way that the neighbours would see her leaving the house alone, which they did indeed, according to reports by the police during the investigation. Copano had apparently hoped that this would provide reinforcement to the story that Sephora had left of her own free will. 
Copano and his brother then followed her out of the house and attacked her on the outskirts of Bloemfontein. He stabbed and strangled Sephora while his brother held her down. They then disposed of her body close by. The pair had then drawn a friend into the case by asking for his help to cover their tracks. The motive for the murder at this point is unknown. The men appeared in Bloemfontein Magistrates Court for the first time on the 20th of July, and they'll apply for bail in the next few days. Also in Bloemfontein, one victim has at least received partial justice, as her murderer was recently sentenced to 25 years in jail. In July last year, 66-year-old Anna Herbst died in a house fire on her small holding in Martindale. What initially seemed like a tragic accident turned far darker when investigators discovered that Anna had been tied up. Anna Herbst was a well-known figure in the Bloemfontein community, and she was affectionately known as the Pancake Lady, as she earned money by selling pancakes at a local butchery. Anna had done her utmost to hold on to her independence as she reached retirement age and after the death of her husband, and although several people had pleaded with her to move out of her isolated home, she'd refused insisting that she could look after herself and that she didn't want to give up her home just yet. Sadly, on the evening of the 6th of July 2019, Anna would have that choice taken away from her. She returned from her day's pancake sales and having netted 4,000 rand, she left the money in a locked tin in her vehicle as she intended to continue selling pancakes the next day. That night, though, as darkness fell, three men crept onto her property. They were local residents and well aware that Anna lived alone. They first broke into her car and found the money box, but 4,000 rand just wasn't enough, and they proceeded to break into Anna's home as well. After pilfering what they could from the house, the men tied Anna up and then set fire to the house, leaving her to die. The three men were arrested not long after. Lechlonolo Hans, 19, was the accused that was recently found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. He admitted to starting the fire, which would eventually kill Anna. He told the courts that they'd spent the money on clothing, alcohol, and procuring the services of sex workers. Tabon Toleng, 20, and Mpo Matao, 19, will appear in court in October. I simply cannot understand the unnecessary brutality of this. There was absolutely no reason for them to kill her. She was sleeping when they found her. She hadn't even heard them break into the car or the house. They could have taken everything and left, and she would have woken up with no idea who robbed her. I am glad, and I'm sure that Anna's family is as well, that at least justice is being served. But this case is really so tragic. 
I'll keep an eye on the news and let you know if I see anything more about the sentencing of the other two in this case. On Friday, the 24th of July, residents of Malmesbury and the surrounding towns in the Western Cape received the news that 69 awaiting trial prisoners had escaped from Malmesbury Prison and were on the run. At around 12.15 on Friday afternoon, the group of prisoners had been allowed to exercise under supervision on the premises of Malmesbury Correctional Centre. The prison has 451 inmates and 20 correctional officers to supervise them. At a rate of 23 prisoners to one guard, which is probably better than the national average, although the articles don't say how many officers were supervising the 69 that day, it likely wouldn't have been more than three or four. The prisoners overpowered the guards, took the keys, locked the guards in an office, and then opened other prisoners' cells, before all escaping through the main entrance and over a wall. Nine guards who attempted to stop the fleeing prisoners were injured. Clearly, although the escape itself was decently planned, they hadn't thought much about what they would do after they got out, because 63 prisoners were rearrested within hours of escaping. Six are still at large. Prison officials identified the men who'd apparently planned and initiated the escape, and they've been transferred to maximum security facilities. In a story which underlines the power of the sharing of stories by survivors, a 23-year-old woman has laid charges against her stepfather and revealed to her family for the first time that the man raped her when she was 12 years old. Azole Ketwa attended a Mandela Day event at which a speaker shared her own story of surviving rape. And Azole says that she felt empowered to take action against her own rapist. Her mother, upon hearing her daughter's painful revelation, has left the man and intends to fully support her daughter in prosecuting him. The event was hosted by the organization Gift of the Givers, and its spokesperson, Imtaz Suleiman, says that the police's Family and Child Sex Offences Unit has been excellent in dealing with the victim, and that they had provided support and counselling. The accused was arrested within 24 hours of charges having been laid. Although I'm painfully aware that the story is not representative of the average sexual violation of young boys and girls by their caregivers, it does give me some hope. So often, men and women who've been raped by family members will continue through their entire lives without ever telling their story. They'll be forced to sit at the same table as their rapist and see them day in and day out. Often, no one else is aware. But all too often, the entire family is complicit in keeping these dark secrets. Azole chose to tell her story because she was empowered by the story of another survivor. This is the deep, life-changing value of truth-telling. Azole, 
You are a brave and phenomenal woman, and we are all behind you as you seek your justice. And the final story I want to chat about is quite a shocking one, and one that I think is going to prove to be an interesting court case. 52-year-old Debbie Fenter moved in with her half-sister in March this year after her stage 4 cancer became unmanageable and she was unable to care for herself. She lived with her half-sister Denita van Rijn and Denita's husband, Gert, in Bronkosbreit, for two months. Debbie regularly posted messages online thanking the couple for caring for her. Then, on the 29th of May, Debbie disappeared. A missing persons report was filed, and Denita claimed that Debbie had simply driven off and not returned. In the days which followed Debbie's disappearance, Denita posted messages online begging her sister to make contact, saying that she'd phoned her seven times and couldn't get hold of her. Debbie remained missing for two weeks while police investigated. Her vehicle was found being driven by a person who said they'd purchased it from the owner. And then, on the 12th of June, a wildfire swept through Lindo Park in Pretoria, and firefighters found a body in a burnt-out stretch of field. The body would later be identified as Debbie Fenter by her fingerprints. She was still wearing her pyjamas, indicating that it was unlikely she'd planned to leave the house. Her hands were tied behind her back, and the burnt remains of a plastic bag were found over her head. The woman, who was so fragile from her battle with cancer, weighed only 42 kilograms and was wearing an adult diaper due to her inability to get to the toilet quickly. In the condition that she was in, even if we disregard the bound hands and plastic bag, that this frail woman had got out of her bed, into her car, and driven 50 kilometers from Bronkosbreit to Pretoria seems highly unlikely. When police went to Denita's house to inform her of the passing of her sister, they discovered that the couple were no longer living in Bronkosbreit. A joint investigation by the Investigative Psychology Unit and several other units within the SAPS resulted in a shocking arrest on the 4th of July. Denita and Gert van Rijn were arrested at a house in Pretoria for the murder of Denita's half-sister Debbie. Some sources have said that Debbie was waiting for a policy to pay out, which amounted to 80,000 rand. She'd planned to use this money for her care going forward. Financial records show that the policy paid out on the 12th of May, just two weeks before Debbie went missing. Denita has declined to apply for bail, and Gert will be appearing for his bail hearing soon. Left behind to deal with the aftershock is Denita and Debbie's father, who is 77, and her stepmother, 
who is Danita's biological mother. Debbie did not have any children of her own, but she helped to raise her brother's two children after he passed away 13 years ago. Although in the early stages of this case, some wondered whether this could be a case of assisted suicide due to Debbie's advanced cancer, the condition in which her body was found strikes this off the list of options in my opinion. You don't have to tie someone's hands behind their back if you're helping them to achieve their dying wish. Unless that isn't their wish at all, and you know that they're going to fight back. I will definitely be following this case as it progresses, and keep you updated. And that is our Spotlight Minisode for the week. Before I go, I'd like to tell you about an awesome new South African podcast that I've come across. Many fans of true crime are also fans of tales about paranormal activity. And I've always thought that South Africa needed its very own paranormal podcast. Well, we now have one. Dead Curious is hosted by sisters Roxanne and Jessica. They cover paranormal stories from South Africa and across the globe, with a hint of true crime to sweeten the deal. I am really impressed with this podcast, and I highly recommend that you check it out if you're into the paranormal. Here's Roxanne and Jessica with their promo. Are you a little more than curious about things that go bump in the night? If so, then Dead Curious is the podcast for you. From folklore to serial killers, the supernatural to true crime, each week strange sisters Roxanne and Jessica share creepy stories, bizarre theories, and admit to being a little dead curious. I'll leave a link to the Dead Curious podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's mini-sode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next week with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.